This week we check back in with Dr. Teresa Williams on the status of the medical world's response to the ongoing battle with COVID-19. Hear how things have changed from a treatment perspective since we spoke with Dr. Williams last spring and what may be a realistic timeline for a vaccine. Welcome back to Moments That Matter. We have a highly favored guest with us today who joined us in the spring of last year, right when the COVID-19 pandemic began. Dr. Teresa Williams is employed here in the upstate and she works as a hospitalist and she shared her wisdom back at the beginning of the pandemic. And now we are checking in for a follow-up. Dr. Teresa Williams, so good to see you again. Thanks for having me on again today. We want to just pick up where we left off and see where these many months forward has left us and question you a little bit about where you find us and where you see things going in the future, even from now. So we spoke with you uh, right after the United States shut down uh, in March. And I'm not sure we could have imagined at that point that we would still be dealing uh, with the virus in such a constant state uh, in September. So it seems to be affecting everything from business to sports to education. And shockingly, for me at least, uh, we still have more questions than answers. Since we mostly listen or you know, read bad news about the pandemic, is there good news at this point? Yeah, I do think that there's some good news. I mean, I think with time comes more knowledge. Um, also, with time comes more questions. And um, certainly, there are still lots of things that we don't know. There's still lots of downstream effects of this disease that we're still learning about. I was reading just today about, about long COVID, um, kind of an entity of, of looking into symptoms that might um, present themselves months or, or even, uh, we don't know yet, but maybe years after the disease is present. Um, so there, there are certainly lots of things that we don't know, but I do think that we certainly have made some progress in terms of treatment. Um, we've made some progress in um, certainly in vaccine research. Um, of course, there are lots out there, and I'm sure that's something that we could talk a little bit more about later on. But um, I do think that as a society, we're getting a, a better handle on what um, this disease is and getting a better handle on how to really proceed from here and how to best um, approach it, both from a public health standpoint and just from a medical individual treatment standpoint. So uh, if you would point listeners uh, to the clearest, most accurate voice you think that we have today about the pandemic, um, who would they be uh, helped to pay attention to? Yeah, so just from a, a general public health standpoint, I still get the majority of my information from the CDC. I think that it is um, kind of the body that takes um, the expertise of our infectious disease doctors, our epidemiologists, our, our immunologists from around the country. They, that's what they do. They're the Center for Disease Control, and um, they are having the top scientists in the country work on um, getting information out there. And the CDC actually has a wealth of information um, that's written in very lay terms that is very understandable. Um, I do think there are certain things that you have to read um, kind of through the lens of a medical professional. So um, 
if there are things that don't make sense or that are a little bit more complicated, um, like some of their graphs that they have on their website, sometimes you, you do need the help of others to interpret it. So um, overall, I would say the CDC and um, South Carolina DHEC also has some great information for our local uh, pandemic here in South Carolina. Um, and then also talking to your friendly health professionals who have a little bit more training in understanding what some of the terms are and what some of the graphs that you might find on some of those websites mean. Um, I would caution people on um, looking at social media and um, caution people on, on anything that gets posted from a political stance. Um, certainly there are lots of people who are using information um, and misinformation in various ways to kind of, um, kind of make their own personal agendas um, getting pushed forward. And so, um, there certainly is a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of, kind of secondary gain to creating misinformation. And so I would certainly caution you on finding random articles on Facebook that are being shared by other people and, and trying to go in and fact check those things with things like um, what the CDC and what the NIH is putting out there. I know um, some people mistrust those sources, but um, honestly, they're they're probably the best sources to find good scientific um, medical information. Maybe one of the better examples of that is what we have all seen within the last few weeks, and what a perfect segue to this question, that the CDC seemed to adjust some numbers and this magical 6% figure emerged. And I saw a lot of people posting about it. In fact, it was trending on Twitter, one of the highest trending items the day that they made that adjustment. And so a lot of people have been using this figure and throwing it around probably without a lot of information behind it. Could you provide for us, I know you've addressed this um, in other formats, but could you provide for us some clarification on this 6% figure that the CDC released a couple weeks ago? Yeah, certainly. So just to clarify for those of you who don't know what Scott's talking about, um, there was a graph that was released by the CDC um, and that many people link to on social media that basically was um, at least being interpreted as saying that only 6% of the deaths um, that are being, are being uh, announced out there were actually from COVID-19. Um, however, that, that's based in a misunderstanding of how the facts are represented in that graph. And so this is a perfect situation where if you don't have a background in um, in medicine or even just in scientific research that you may under misunderstand what that graph is actually talking about. So what the graphic states is that on death certificates, COVID-19 was listed as the only cause of death in 6% of people. Now, just to give you a basic understanding of how a death certificate works, um, whenever, whenever a person dies, a physician is then required to go and certify the cause of death. So that can either be the attending physician, um, that can be somebody who um, was uh, a foreigner who was brought in, if there was an autopsy performed. Um, either way, it's it's a medical professional, an MD or a DO, who typically fills in the causes of death. That cause of death can usually be attributed to multiple different factors. So on the graph that the CDC presented, they listed other things that COVID-19 can actually cause itself. So there's COVID-19, there's pneumonia, there's sepsis, which is the body's reaction to infection. 
there's um, acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is uh, ARDS, which you may have heard about some in the news, which is another entity that COVID-19 can cause and that can lead to very serious um, mortality. Um, and then there's, there are a whole slew of things. And then, of course, if somebody had another pre-existing condition like diabetes or cancer or COPD, other things that might contribute to their risk of dying from COVID-19, those also get listed on the death certificate. So if I, as a healthy 35-year-old woman, contracted COVID-19 and I was sick enough to get hospitalized and then I unfortunately died from that disease, my death certificate would probably list COVID-19, but it also would probably list acute respiratory distress syndrome. If I got um, a, a blood clot as a result of COVID-19, that would be listed on the death certificate. If I got pneumonia, that would be listed on the death certificate. So it would be a very rare instance, even in a completely healthy 35-year-old person, to have COVID-19 listed as the only cause of death. Um, there are usually, at least in South Carolina, there are four different spaces for you to fill in what led to the death. And then there's actually additional spaces to add other things that might have contributed, like diabetes. It may have not been a direct result of death, but, um, but may have just kind of contributed to it. So um, all that to say, the statistic was very misleading, saying that 94% of all people who die from COVID-19 have other conditions going on. Well, most of those quote-unquote other conditions would have been things that COVID-19 would have caused. So um, it basically was saying in 6% of cases, somebody was probably lazy and only listed COVID-19 as the old cause of death, whereas in any case, there are lots of things that would lead to death, even if it was a cascade of events. I'm wondering, since we last met together, if the treatments have changed, I know when we talked last time, there were hopeful treatments. Uh, there was also, I think, sort of this underlying mentality that, well, uh, a magic cure may be discovered some, in some random corner of the earth, or maybe we'll have a, a magic treatment that we found. How has the treatment of hospitalized COVID patients changed since we last talked about this in the spring? Yeah, so when all this started, I think everybody was hoping for and looking for a magic silver bullet. And the bottom line answer is that we're still hoping for and looking for a magic silver bullet. I don't think we found it yet. Um, this is kind of the unfortunate uh, product of a viral disease. As, as you guys know, viruses are things like colds. Um, there are lots of things that are caused by viruses out there, and there's just not a lot of good treatments for them and never really have been. And so it just makes it a bit more difficult to find a good treatment course. So there have been lots of things that have been tried. Um, some things that have fallen out of favor. So hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, um, which is a, a medication that's been used for malaria and then lots of other autoimmune things over, over the course of decades. Um, it has actually been found to not be helpful and the harm um, that could be incurred from side effects, they feel like um, outweighs the benefit. So that is a treatment that has kind of fallen out of favor that we did discuss back. There are several other things that are being tried. Um, there's only one treatment right now that the CDC is actually kind of, there's not anything that's been FDA approved actually for the treatment of COVID, even at this point, as we see. Um, there's one medication that is being recommended by the CDC. So right now, um, there's a medication called remdesivir that um, 
is being used in hospitalized patients who require oxygen. And the reason for needing um, to have kind of that criteria is that because the supply is in, uh, it's kind of a short supply, so we're trying to make sure that we're reserving it for people who can truly benefit from it. So remdesivir is being used in, in our hospital protocols for people who are on three liters of oxygen or more. Um, the CDC actually has guidance that if you are intubated, so those that are very severely ill, um, they actually don't recommend using it in those people. Um, and that's not necessarily part of all, all hospital protocols, but according to the CDC, um, the guidance is that we just don't know that it truly benefits people who are that sick, and so they're, they're not using it in those, or they're not recommending its use in those cases. Um, but that's the only treatment that is being officially recommended by the CDC. Now, certainly there are other things that we're still looking into. So also as a part of our, our protocol in our hospitals here in the upstate is that we're using something called convalescent plasma. Um, so this may be something that you've heard of. It basically is where patients who have recovered from COVID-19, they develop antibodies, which are what our body uses to fight infection. And those antibodies can be found in your plasma, which is a component of your blood. So if you have recovered from COVID-19, they are asking people to actually donate their plasma so that it can be given just like any other blood transfusion to patients who are ill from COVID-19. Now the theory is that the antibodies that somebody formed as they were recovering from the disease can be infused through a blood product into someone who's sick from the disease to then help them fight out the so we are using that, again, in patients who are requiring oxygen, so kind of looking at the severity of their disease if they're hospitalized and they have low oxygen levels, then they qualify under our protocols for convalescent plasma. Um, the idea behind this whole protocol was um, based in what they used to do for measles back in the day. This is one of the treatments that they used back before we had a vaccine. Um, so there's definitely some precedent for this kind of treatment that had worked at least to some degree in the past before an effective vaccine was in place. Now, I did just read that um, the studies that they've done thus far on convalescent plasma haven't really found any great mortality benefit. So looking at those patients seven days out from getting a transfusion, um, there's not a huge difference between those who get convalescent plasma and those who do. However, um, the risks of it are, are similar to risks with any other sort of blood transfusion. So in those that are very ill, the, the I guess, potential benefit might outweigh the risk because it's, it's not like a medication that's going to have very serious side effects. Although, of course, anytime you transfuse blood, making sure that you've got natural blood products and things to prevent very serious reactions, we usually don't have that many problems. Um, so at least in our upstate protocols, we feel like it's still worth a shot. Um, although, again, the studies are kind of mixed and right now not really showing any great benefit of that. Um, so those are the, the big things that we're using as far as treatment goes here in the upstate. Um, there are several other things that are being looked into. Um, there are other medications. There's an anti-immune kind of immune system inflammatory marker medication, tocolizumab, that has been looked into. Again, the studies are kind of mixed and there's not any official recommendation to use it. Um, there is also uh, some groups that are looking into some other more unusual treatments. There's a medication called ivermectin that's currently being studied. 
um, that's actually an anti-parasitic medication. So I think we're still kind of where we were back in the spring, where there's still lots of unknowns. Um, there are some things that we've tested and found not to really be helpful that we thought were kind of hopeful back in the spring. Um, so this is kind of similar to any other any other new medical treatment. You just kind of have to keep trying things and figure out what works. And um, unfortunately, we're just uh, still in the early stages of, of sorting out what the best treatment is going to be for this disease. Something else that's happened since the spring uh, is that we've had reports of cases where people have had COVID-19 recovered and then gotten it again. Um, are we aware of any cases locally um, of this happening? Have you seen anything about this? I personally have not seen any of those cases. Um, the official report is that there are only two proven cases of reinfection, so one in Hong Kong and one in uh, Reno, Nevada. And those are cases where patients had the, the viral genome actually sequenced, so they were able to prove that it was truly a reinfection. Mm -hmm. um, I think the tough thing is that I just don't know that COVID has been around long enough for us to truly see what happens when people's immunity wanes. So I think right now the current belief is that we've got maybe three, two to three months of, of immunity before you're going to be at risk for reinfection. Um, but again, I think there's just so much that we, we don't yet know. And of course, there's lots of anecdotes about people having um, being reinfected or um, at least experiencing symptoms and whether that's a true reinfection or whether it's reactivation of the previous virus. I don't know that we, we truly know the answer to that quite yet. And speaking of things that we don't know, um, apart from the political implications, uh, which we hear about all the time, um, do you have any sense, you know, with the way the trials are going right now with the vaccines, like what's realistic? Um, I mean, we're hearing all kinds of, you know, timeframes, but a lot of it seems to be kind of politically driven, you know? Yeah, so I know there, um, there's been some promises about a vaccine coming out even as early as October. I think that's very unrealistic, to be quite honest. Um, you know, typically vaccine research is something that takes years. And so the fact that we've already got now, um, I saw nine vaccines in phase three trials, um, is actually pretty phenomenal that we're that far into the research. And I know a lot of this is because um, a lot of money is being directed this way. There's a lot more funding than there typically would be for, for something like this. Um, and so there's a lot of time and effort that's being directed towards finding a vaccine because I think that's what everybody hopes would be the eventual end to all of the craziness, to all the masks and needing to be worn, all of the shutdown. Um, I think realistically, the earliest we'd probably see a vaccine would be next year. Um, I think scientifically, the right answer is probably we'll have a vaccine when one can safely be, be created. And I just don't think that we know the answer to that yet. Um, just to give a little bit of background for those of you who may not understand what exactly a phase three trial means, what, how vaccine development works, basically there are um, three phases of vaccine development prior to a vaccine being approved, at least here in the United States. So phase one is where a company will give a vaccine to a very small group of people to figure out whether it's safe and what the appropriate dose of that vaccine. 
Phase two is where they expand the number of people that they will give that vaccine to. So they'll include uh, maybe pediatric patients, maybe elderly patients, people who might have other health conditions um, to see whether the vaccine is truly safe in those people. Once a vaccine moves to phase three trials, it's generally thought to have been proven safe, and they're really just trying to see if it's effective. So they will give the vaccine to large numbers of people and then um, compare that usually with a placebo, which means they don't actually get the vaccine, and see whether people um, have any protection against coronavirus in this um, so, for instance, the vaccine that's been in the news the last couple of days is the AstraZeneca vaccine that is currently in phase three trials is the one that I think people probably put near the, the top of the list as far as hopefuls for being our eventual um, vaccine that we'll have out the quickest. Um, it recently had to halt its phase three trial because there was a severe adverse effect in one person. They have not been very clear on what that severe adverse effect is, but essentially, that vaccine being in phase three trials um, currently is enrolling about 30,000 people to give the vaccine to basically to see if they have immunity to um, coronavirus. Their phase two trials showed that almost everybody had the development of immunity after um, the second dose that they got that vaccine. Um, so now being halted with that vaccine in particular um, basically just means that there's somebody who was hospitalized we don't know whether that was due to an effect from the vaccine or not, but as part of their protocol, they really need to stop and see what's going on with that one person to see if this is something that, that might cause effects in other people. So um, because you are giving the vaccine to such large numbers of people, you might see things that would be more rare events in that larger group of people. And then you would have in a phase two trial where smaller groups of people are getting the vaccine. So once you complete a phase three trial, the FDA is requiring that the vaccine be at least 50% effective, which doesn't, doesn't sound super hopeful, but that's what the FDA has kind of set as their benchmark. And so if a vaccine is 50% effective and safe, then they would then approve that vaccine to be used in population at large. Um, and so there are there are bodies of people that are actually trying to sit down and come up with protocols for how we can give this vaccine to, to which people and at what times. You know, do we want to give it to healthcare workers first? Do we want to give it to elderly people, people in nursing homes, people in prisons? How do we effectively roll out a vaccine once one is available so that we're protecting the largest numbers of people and so that we're um, getting to that magical herd immunity number of 60 to 70 percent of the population that are immune to it to hopefully create herd immunity and to stop the spread of this virus and to stop it. So that's what we're working towards. Um, again, I think realistically it's going to be um, at least next year before we get there. Um, but there are right now, as I said, nine vaccines that are in phase three trials um, there are three that the U.S. is funding with Operation Warp Speed, which I'm not sure was the best name to instill confidence of the American people in our, um, in our safety of our vaccines. But um, the FDA, I know, is, is closely following those things and um, working to make sure that, that we have a good vaccine that is safe and effective so that we can hopefully move past the days of COVID. Um, and is that 50% number from the FDA, is that normal? 
That's a great question. Um, I will be honest, I am not an immunologist, and so I, I don't know. I mean, I know with the flu vaccine, um, it the number tends to be kind of around there every year. Um, I'm not sure what, honestly, their benchmark is for approving the flu vaccine. Um, but, you know, you're, you're not going to have something that's 100% effective. That's just not realistic. Um, but I think as long as you have a vaccine that's safe, um, then I think being able to protect 50% of the time is certainly much better than right now. You know, if you're exposed to coronavirus, your, your risk of catching it is much, much higher than that. So um, I do think that if we can get at least an initial vaccine that is at least that effective, then we'll certainly be in a better place than, than we will be without. And speaking of the flu, um, a term that's been coined lately is twindemic. Um, and so being 60-something uh, as I am, uh, I have never actually gotten the flu shot, but I'm seriously thinking about it this year. Uh, is that something that you would recommend in the fall? Absolutely. Um, I think we know that people can get the flu and coronavirus together. Um, having one does not exclude you from the other. And so um, especially for, for those of us in healthcare and those of us in the hospitals, um, please, please uh, make sure you get your flu vaccine. I think that um, the flu vaccine is something that, that has been proven safe and that has been around. And um, so we at least know for those of you that may be a little leery of a vaccine that came out of Operation Warp Speed, um, at least the flu vaccine is something that we do have access to and that we can use to hopefully decrease the amount of flu hospitalizations and um, you know, having the flu would make your immune system down and would make you more susceptible to COVID. And if you were to catch COVID on top of the flu, then you're going to be at much higher risk for having respiratory symptoms and ending up in the hospital. Um, and so I certainly, for myself, I'm, I'm fearful of what the fall and what the winter is going to bring with um, an already overloaded and taxed healthcare system. So I think one of the biggest things that we can do on a public health is to make sure that as many people get the flu vaccine as possible to hopefully prevent those um, kind of dual infections that would put you at higher risk for getting sick and just put our healthcare system at greater risk of, of hitting its max capacity. Okay, thanks. Speaking of that immunization, I know with the flu shot, people talk about um, people who have gotten the flu shot and then end up getting the flu, but have a far less severe case uh, of the flu. Would that be one of the hopes of the coronavirus immunization that maybe it won't protect you 100% of people from getting it, but at least it would cause those symptoms to be less severe? Is that, is that one of the hopes of uh, immunizations? Yeah, certainly. Um, so for those of you who don't really know how immunization works, um, basically it's just where you expose your body to a, um, typically, at least in the case of the flu vaccine, it's an inactivated part of the virus so that your body can see it and start to develop um, antibodies against it so that when it sees the actual flu, your immune system is already ready and has already developed those antibodies to go ahead and fight it off so that you hopefully don't have symptoms. Um, and if you do, your immune system will ramp up faster than it would if it had never seen it before so that you can get over it. Um, so certainly that will be the hope with the coronavirus vaccine that 
um, if it doesn't actually prevent you from getting the illness, that it would at least decrease the severity of your illness when, when you get it. Um, and just a point of clarification, when you're talking about those who get the vaccine and then later get the flu, um, that's not as a result of the flu vaccine. Um, so the, there are different kinds of vaccines, and of course the coronavirus vaccines that are being um, trialed right now, there are lots of different kinds, and, and we don't really have time to get into the details of, of how those vaccines are being created. But at least in the case of the flu vaccine, it's an inactivated portion of the virus, and so um, it is not something that's going to give you the flu. So you can't get the flu from the flu vaccine, despite what people think. Um, it may make you, you may have some symptoms for a couple of days, but you don't actually have the flu. But you certainly can then become exposed to it later on and get the flu from, you know, from someone else, uh, just the way that you get the flu. Just to clarify, you're not going to get the flu from the vaccine. I hate to use the M word, mutation, but is there a possibility of, uh, I know with the flu vaccine, it appeals to a certain type of flu, um, maybe more so than the other. Have they addressed the mutations of coronavirus or are we still before that threshold? Um, so again, I think this is still something that um, certainly there's lots of concern about, at least when it comes to vaccine development. Any Anything that's going to significantly mutate is going to certainly make vaccines much more difficult to develop, which is one reason why HIV still does not have an effective vaccine. It's a highly mutatable virus. Um, with coronavirus, I, I don't know that we truly know or understand how quickly or if it's going to mutate. I do know that, at least in the cases where they sequenced the genome of the virus, um, where patients were truly reinfected, um, there was a difference in the genome. So that does mean that there, there are some at least subtle differences that may make you more susceptible to getting a different strain of coronavirus um, to potentially get reinfected. But again, um, this is a very new virus as far as, um, as far as our research goes. And so there's still lots of things that are still a bit uncertain at the time. How about this? Um, I know at the beginning they were talking about uh, lots of concern over a second wave that I guess they presumed would come more toward the fall or winter. Are we on the back end of the first wave? Have, has the first wave even crested yet? Are we close to a second wave? What, what do they uh, say regarding that in the medical community? Um, so I... So I'll be honest, this is not the opinion of the medical community at large. This is just myself kind of looking at the, um, the curve where we are. But I think if you look, at least in the state of South Carolina, where our infection rates are, um, we steadily were climbing in the months of May. We hit a peak in the month of July and then have started to kind of come back down off of that peak. Um, right now, our rates are declining from where they were back in July, um, but they're still about where they were in June as we were starting to kind of hit the top of that crest. So I would say personally, at least in the state of South Carolina, that we're kind of coming off of the, the first wave. I wouldn't say that we've had a big increase or a, a second rise, at least, again, looking at the overall number of cases per day um, with our, our current situation, but I do think 
that that is a risk if people start to get the idea that this is not serious or if they start to just kind of um, abandon all of the, the social distancing practices that, that people have become accustomed to, um, wearing masks, um, trying to avoid big, large gatherings. I think people are starting really to do a better job of understanding, okay, this is, this is going to be with us for a while. This is our new normal. Um, and this is how we're just going to have to approach life, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, and I think as long as people continue to do those things, hopefully we'll stay in kind of a steady state. Although, again, it'll be interesting to see what happens once flu season really kicks up um, and going into the fall and winter um, to see if there's any kind of seasonality with this virus that we still don't truly know. Um, there was certainly hope that it was going to decrease in the summer, and we didn't see that. We actually saw a rise in infections probably because more people were getting out and about and interacting with one another, and we're just tired of the lockdown, to be honest. Um, but hopefully people will take it seriously as we move into the fall and winter, and hopefully we'll stay um, again, in kind of a, at least a steady state, if not declining from here. I know we ended the podcast last time talking about what advances would be made in the medical world that would be things that would stay around that would kind of take the medical world to the next level. Have you seen any of those changes thus far that have been beneficial in the way that the medical world is treating coronavirus and have those things come to stay from now throughout the future? Yeah, so I definitely think we've had, um, and this is not just in the medical community, but in the business world at large, but certainly lots of advancements in terms of um, telemedicine and um, working to see people remotely um, using what technology we have to be able to to be able to examine patients from afar. Um, they have been piloting a program at our hospital even to have doctors rounding remotely. Um, not that that would be the norm, but just if our, if our staff was down to a level where we had to have people who were quarantining at home still seeing patients, um, having ways to do that. And we actually have found ways to see patients in the hospital with the doctors at home. Um, having patients who are sick enough to need a doctor check in on them every day, but actually not sick enough to need to have to be in the hospital, um, having advancements in ways that patients can actually stay at home while still being rounded on by a doctor remotely. I think those are things that without coronavirus probably would have taken years to get through um, insurance companies and red tape and getting reimbursement for those kinds of things. So we certainly have seen lots of advancements in telemedicine um, that I, I hope and think will continue to be a part of our world post-coronavirus. Um, I think also just the collaboration that we've seen among physicians and among scientists as they work really hard to find treatments, to find vaccines, um, I think that certainly is something that um, will continue as we move forward, um, hopefully beyond this pandemic. Um, so I think those things, and then again, just from a personal spiritual standpoint, um, understanding that we are not in charge and that God is so much bigger than we are and that he knows everything there is to know about coronavirus. And so um, reaching a state where we as physicians who are used to knowing everything or, or supposed to be on top of our game, realizing that there are so many things that we don't know and we have to come to the end of ourselves and we have to rely on God to give us the knowledge to be able to treat these patients. Um, if not, if we don't know 
how to best treat them to be there and to be compassionate and um, just to walk with them through it as they deal with with this big unknown that we're all dealing with. And so I think just drawing people together and giving us a much bigger reliance on forces that are outside of ourselves um, and knowing that, that God is in charge of this whole thing and that he has all the knowledge that we need and he can give it to us as we need it. Um, so I think that's something that hopefully, not just for those of us who are Christians, but but for all physicians, we'll start to realize that that this is a lot bigger than we are as humans and um, that we all need God and that we all we all have a reliance on him for everything that we we continue to remain in prayer for you and our medical professionals who truly are in the front lines of this battle. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Teresa. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Moments That Matter, a podcast that looks at the moments in our lives that come along from time to time that have consequences long after the moment, especially those moments that have to do with the choice of vocation. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation, Parker Palmer speaks of a clearness committee in the Quaker tradition, wherein a group of older, wiser people ask questions of someone considering a life choice as a way of clarifying the next step. We may not meet with a committee about these big decisions, but we all have these critical junctures in our lives, which we can think of as clearness committee moments. We need to pay attention to these moments because they are profound and potentially life-altering. We'll relay stories from our lives and interview others about theirs, especially noting the clearness committee moments those we choose to recognize, and those that were sadly ignored, those decisions that were made with God in mind, and those that were not. Our hope is that these podcasts will cause you to think of the same kind of moments in your life with new clarity.